Welcome to The Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Eric Pfeiffer is a psychiatrist on the western coast of Florida. He is with the University of South Florida College of Medicine, and he spent his life working in the areas of Alzheimer's and gerontology. I recently heard him speak on the strategies for successful aging. What struck me is just how much retirement is now the beginning of a long period of life, not necessarily just a brief time from the end of work to the end of life. Our society is changing, and it is proper for the mental health profession to help people prepare for this. Dr. Pfeiffer, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. As a bit of background, and this is information I called from the Social Security Administration as best as I could get it, in the year 2000, there were just over 30 million Social Security income recipients. As of August 2010, that number has reached 59 million. Of course, these numbers do not measure how many of these folks are retired, but they do give a sense of how our population is shifting. So let's begin with the two-part question. Do people understand the size of this section of life of going into retirement? And what are the more common errors people make when they prepare to retire? Well, I think you ask a very good question. I think in the old days, a few years ago, it used to be that when people retired, they thought they would die in a few years. But nowadays, you can't count on dying anymore when you retire. In fact, you have a whole generation of life left to live. People can expect to live 15, 20, 25, even 35 more years. Some of them are going to become centenarians. And because it is such an extensive period of time, it is very well to prepare for that and to make a success out of the aging experience. In the past, aging has been a bit of a scary experience for a lot of people, but it doesn't have to be that way. And we have tried to distill what we've learned from our successfully aging patients and their families some strategies of how you yourself can prepare for the aging experience and make this the best time of your life. Where should we begin? Which of your many observations seems to be the one that gives people, shall we say, the hardest time, is most difficult for them to do? Well, there isn't just one. That's really what I'm trying to convey by saying 14 strategies for successful aging. Uh, you need to pay attention to a lot of different things. But let me give you something in a, in a kind of a nutshell. Okay. I had one elderly patient coming to me whom I treated for a period of time for depression who recovered fully from the depression and then went on to live to 104 years of age. After I treated her for the depression, she came back to me and said, you know, I'm really grateful that you helped me out of this tough spot. I'm doing fine now. And she said to me the following short phrase, I'm doing okay now. She said, I like where I live. I know who I am and I'm not alone. And I said to myself, wow, isn't that kind of a recipe for successful aging? That is. And uh, it is the beginning of it. It implies that you, first of all, need to find an ideal place to live that you can choose. And, you know, when you retire, you're no longer tied to your job. You don't have to live in Minneapolis, Minnesota or in Cleveland, Ohio. You can live anywhere you want to in Florida, anywhere in the world. And you, you can choose where to live and how to live. Is it important that people live near their children? Is that a major issue? I know a lot of people wonder, when I retire, should I live near my kids? Well, I think that's a very personal question. Today, we have all kinds of connectedness that is far more important than exactly the geographic distance. First of all, we have planes and automobiles, and we can travel easily. And most retirees can travel to their children when they want to, or their children can travel to them. But we also have the Internet. We have the telephone, we have Skype, where you can see your grandchildren or your children, and you can be in frequent contact almost momentarily. 
in a way that we never could before. So it's not absolutely critical that you live near them, but the important thing is that you want to be in touch with them. You want to be able to communicate to your family and your children, your grandchildren. We think grandchildren and their grandparents as each other's treasure. Being in contact with one's grandchildren is great for the grandchildren and is great for the grandparents. And so we encourage various ways of being in contact, whatever that way might be. And we have so many new ways of being in contact. For instance, even this communication is taking place over long distance, but can have instant communication, instant access. Anybody can press a button and find this communication. One of the things that you that your comments just suggested to me was that we need to differentiate between the notion of retirement and the full activity that can occur as opposed to those more very stressful times at the end of life when there is disabilities and, and, and major illnesses. Most of retirement is healthy. Most of retirement is in fact healthy and I think maintaining one's health for as long as possible, fighting for one's independence for as long as possible, covers about 80 or 90 percent of the retirement period. And the last few years, of course, may come to experience some degree of illness, some degree of limitations of mobility, some degree of pain even. But we also have ways of dealing with those. And if you are going to have to become dependent later on in the last final couple of years, it is very important that you plan to have somebody upon whom you can depend, either a spouse or a live-in caregiver or some other kind of arrangement where what you can't do anymore can be done for you when you can't do it yourself anymore. But that's a very small portion of it. Because the larger portion, again, is being healthy and alive and socially engaged and Absolutely. exploring and, things. And you can do, you know, whatever you want to do. And I've sort of, uh, sort of said failure is not an option in retirement. You know, if you fail, you go on to something else. You have your pension, you have your retirement. You know, if you risk something and it doesn't work out, well, go on to the next thing. But you can try out things that you never thought you'd be able to do. Let's go back to you, to what you mentioned in some specifics of, you called them the Ten Commandments of Wellness. I thought this was a very good conceptualization to put in someone's head. The Ten Commandments of Wellness, if you could explain. There are things that you can do to allow you to make it more likely that you will remain healthy. And I've called them the Ten Commandments of Wellness. Let me tell you what they are. The first one is engage in vigorous exercise every day. The second is eat a heart-healthy diet. That is a diet that consists of vegetables, fruits, and grains, and whole grains, and maybe if you use any fat, use olive oil. It is very important as a third commandment to avoid being overweight or becoming overweight. And fourth, absolutely do not smoke. We know too much about it now for anybody still to continue to smoke. You may use alcohol, but only in moderation. A drink a day is fine, but more than that is probably not good indication anymore. We recommend that you get seven to eight hours of sleep every day at the same time, going to bed at the same time, in the same place, and get up at the same time. You need to develop a mechanism for reducing stress. Whatever works for you, whether that might be yoga or meditation or communication or prayer or a spiritual involvement, or physical exercise, you need to find a way of reducing stress because it will occur. And very importantly, number eight, you must remain socially active and involved. We need to stay connected to other people, not only to family members, but other people in the larger community. And we also recommend that you reduce any risk-taking behavior. Don't start riding a motorcycle when you're 65 if you've never done it before. 
Don't go skiing for the first time in Colorado when you're 65. Reduce those things that might be risky for you. And finally, get vaccinated against the flu every year and against shingles once in a lifetime and against pneumonia once. Those practiced commandments will get you to remain physically active and healthy. And health makes everything else possible in your retirement years. And one of the always discussed issues, of course, is memory loss. I mean, part of that is just the natural process of aging. What can people do, I would like to say, to prevent? That's unrealistic. But to reduce or manage situations as their memory might begin to fail. Well, I think it's important to understand that there are several types of memory loss. One is as we age, most of us develop a small decline in our memory capacity that we call benign forgetfulness. We sometimes don't recognize the name of a person we meet or don't remember where we parked our car, but in a little while it comes back to us. That's a minor problem and we uh, sort of need to begin to make notes and lists to remind ourselves of doing it, but that is not a real major problem. But then some people become ill with major brain problems such as Alzheimer's disease or vascular dementia where there is a real impairment of memory function and intellectual function, and that may even be progressive. When that happens, we now have ways of evaluating the degree and the cause of the memory loss, and we now have treatments available for treating memory loss, whether it be Alzheimer's disease or whether it be the after effects of a stroke or of multiple strokes, and people can recover. And while we don't have a cure for Alzheimer's disease yet, we have ways of slowing the progression and of stopping the progression for several years. So when that happens, you need to consult somebody who's an expert on memory and get treatment because medications are now available that help reduce the progression of this disease. It is so important to preserve your brain, to maintain your brain. The most important thing is that you remain active in using your brain. In other words, you've got to maintain your brain by exercising it, by feeding it properly, and by protecting it, such as from falls and from injury and so on. It is very important, and, and again, by staying socially active, you are likely to be able to exercise your brain and to learn new activities and to learn new skills and to pass on those skills that you have in connection with other people. And by the same token, I think a lot of people know, but maybe it's not adequately discussed is that there is a a good or very common presence of depression in the elderly that can cause what seems like memory loss old age can be a period of losses we lose our job identity we lose many of our friends and that leads to grief and depression Now, depression is a normal phenomenon that can be treated very effectively if you become depressed and you shouldn't give in to it you should just go and get treatment for it from your mental health professional a psychiatrist a social worker or a psychologist and get out of the depression temporary depression is not uncommon but it doesn't have to be tolerated and that is in general what we recommend that any illness that occurs in old age ought to be treated vigorously and completely and lead to full recovery and to give plenty of process time for healing 
from an injury or from an illness, a chronic illness or an acute illness, as well as depression. Do you think that the old stigma that existed against mental health issues, depression in particular, is as common in the current population of the older folks as it was a few years ago? Has it changed for that population? I think it's still there to some degree, but I think we simply need to face it. And I think the current generation of the baby boomers, the 65 million people that are going to reach 65 and over have a very different attitude. They have a much more aggressive attitude towards managing their problems, and I think they're perfectly willing to consult. And we now have coverage for mental disorders that is on a par with physical disorders so that you can get treatment that is covered by health insurance. One of the comments that I remember from a teacher from many years ago when we were talking about how folks got older and what it was like for them, and you just referred to this a moment or two ago, was the notion of developing a new identity, an identity of retirement. But I remember the teacher telling me that the that identity, when we're older, also now begins to include one's eventual death. And that that's, an, that's a different twist on things. We don't think about that so much when we're in our 30s. I'd like your thoughts about as people begin to think about their own mortality. Well, I think you make a very, very valid point. I said earlier, you can't count on dying when you retire, but you also can't count on not dying. Eventually, we are all mortal, and we're going to die. And what I'm recommending in this book that I've written is that you prepare for a good goodbye, a good goodbye to be said to the world, to your friends, to your family, and that you do so with dignity and with planfulness, and that you do it so that uh, there is no concern for those left behind you. So we recommend that you begin to think about this and you plan and that you develop information that people that you will leave behind will want to know. And we sort of say uh, have a critical information folder ready for the time when you do depart, which might include writing your own obituary, which might include where all your documents are located, which might include in these days of the computer the passwords to all your accounts and that you plan to do so and that you live a full life and the best revenge is a well-lived life. In the process of doing that and what you talked about are very important mechanical things, but looking inside oneself and, and mental health doesn't I believe, adequately talk about the role of religion and spirituality, but it is so powerful. It gives people such a sense of connectiveness. Your thoughts on the development of a, re- of a religious, philosophic, or spiritual inner connection? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I, I think that's important in all of life, not just as it comes to dying, but it's particularly important when it comes to preparing for dying. We need to have some kind of a meaningful connection that keeps us thinking about what will happen to our memory and what uh, legacy we can leave behind. For many people, this is uh, carried out through religion and a faith in a future. For other people, it is a spirituality that simply means you are connected to all human beings, that we are connected to everyone else and are part of a much larger force of life rather than just our own life, and that that will go on after we are passed away. So I think spiritual involvement is very, very important to get you through rough spots, but also to anticipate your own dying. And however you conceptualize it, in terms of a specific religious conviction or in terms of a general spirituality that emphasizes the common humanity, how we're all connected to one another, how we're all brothers or sisters, is very, very important when it comes to dying. 
And if you're planning to die, do, try to do so with your family around you and having lived a full life until that moment comes. We all wish for a quiet, peaceful death, but sometimes people become ill, and now the hospice movement has become very important for those people who have a terminal illness. Hospice care can provide painless care of every condition so that one doesn't need to go through either in isolation or in pain during the final stages of one's life. I don't know that there are statistics for this, but as you're talking, the question that I want to ask is, do most people adequately or properly prepare for retirement and aging, or do a disproportionately large number of people really struggle with this? How successful are we as a society in helping people prepare for this stage of life? Well, I think this has been what motivated me to write the book, about preparing for retirement, developing the strategies that will allow you to age successfully. And we've gathered example after example of how people have done it and what you need to do to prepare for it. And I think this generation of people who are coming of age, the baby boomers, have done everything better than the previous generation. I think they're going to be a pioneer group who goes through the aging experience uh, with a kind of a mastery that has never been there before. And I think we need to prepare for it because it is such a long period of time and it is complex, but it is something that we're capable of doing. And that's why we're trying to make available to the common reader, to the general public, information about how to prepare for aging so that you all can do uh, successful aging. And if you have aging parents, you might be able to help them overcome some of the difficulties that they are experiencing. One of the interesting comments from a sociologic point of view is the fact that for the first time, maybe in human history, maybe there were a few exceptions over the course of history, this is the first time that as a society we have so many people who are living to these older ages. This is a whole new ball game for society. Absolutely. Uh, we are, the, the 75 period of time is really just middle age these days. And so many people are reaching their 80s and 90s, and we have the number of centenarians, the number of people who reach over 100 is the fastest growing segment of the population. We're just exploding with people into the century-long period of life. But, you know, not everybody's going to get to be 100, but many people are going to be in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, and they can lead very successful lives and stay very active mentally and physically and spiritually and emotionally active. Dr. Eric Pfeiffer is a gerontologist who has written a book called 14 Winning Strategies on Successful Aging, and this can actually be purchased on Amazon. Today we spoke about many topics, and I believe, and he did mention it a little bit earlier in the interview, and he captured it, I thought, in a very poignant manner, that a well-lived life is the best way to die. Very true. It's something that we can manage, we can handle, and we can have some control over it most of the time. Dr. Pfeiffer, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure.